So in the Gospels, you see Jesus having an encounter with a Syrophoenician woman. Jesus is uncharacteristically happy about being told no and being proven wrong. What does that suggest? Does that suggest that the woman surprised Jesus and he's like, wow, I really got to change now. Now I got a new logical argument given. Or does it suggest that he was waiting for this? And like Moses, like Jacob, there's a provocation that's being occurred here that really is trying to test. Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. Today we are in part three of our discussion with Matthew Cortman, discussing some insights and principles from his book, Saying No to God. I hope that these episodes continue to pique your curiosity to go back and study scripture, get involved with the reading of your Bible, and take a firmer interest in this incredible and yet often confusing journey of faith. You can follow our guest today on Twitter at mcortman, and be sure to check out his book, Say No to God. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. And you can follow me at Kendra Arsenault with an X. But right now, this is AdventNext. And so oftentimes, right, religious conservatives or people who are very deeply wanting that certainty instead of being able to accept a sort of much more gray area, that's the epitome of what they're, they're saying. I have these standards. If you don't meet it, then we're not, we're not talking. Or like a, a conversation I had once with, um, with uh, an academic Adventist um, about uh, the divide between conservative and, and uh, less conservative groups of Adventists. Like, okay, here's an academic topic. It's too gray. It's too uh, questionable. So there's no need for us to even have a conversation about it. Like, like we don't like, in fact, so much so that your desire to have a conversation on this would disbar you from having membership in this group. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just not uh, needed, right? Because there's a certain level of certainty that I need. And if I don't reach that certainty, there's no reason entertaining any of this. Yeah. So, right, yeah. like that, it's too often we end up missing the point and putting the blame on doubt when really in the Bible, oftentimes doubt is everywhere and usually quite often in a good light. Right? Job is praised at the end of the book, despite the fact that almost the entire book he's casting doubt on God. It's mm-hmm. not about the fact that you cast doubt or you have questions. It's when it comes push to shove, how do you act? How do you live? Right? Job demonstrates that at the end of the book when he prays for his friends, when he mm-hmm. still, in spite of everything, forgives and embodies who God is. Right? What matters is how you've embodied the character of God in you. The, yeah. the, the process of doubt is just inevitably uh, part of that growth. And when we try to mistake that growth for the problem, what ends up happening, we don't grow. Right. So. It's, it's, it's like, you know, Jesus said, you know, in the end of time, will there be faith? Right. And I think it's that, that movement into the direction of I don't know everything, but I'm, I'm choosing to lean in this direction. Right. And so, so yeah, I think this is, this is interesting. So you have some and New Testament. Oh, go ahead. Faith Sorry. is perfect. No, faith mm-hmm. is perfect, right? Yeah. Because that's the key word, for, in fact, for the Jesus stories that deal with the same thing, is mm-hmm. faith. And, you know, what does faith mean? It, it means to have a trust, right? But what is your trust in, right? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes people think the trust is in the words. You trust that what you've heard the word said, that's what God's will is, and you'll just do it, right? Mm-hmm. But then 
what trust does Moses have in Exodus 32 and Jacob has, right? It's a trust in God's character, in his revelation over time to them, in his consistency, in who God is intrinsically. It's not a trust that's simply rooted in, well, God said this, so that must settle it. So in the Gospels, you see Jesus um, having an encounter with, according to the Gospel of Mark, a Syrophoenician woman. But in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, she's described theologically as a Canaanite woman. And, And she's done so because Matthew wants to emphasize not only is this woman a foreigner, which makes her the other to a lot of Jews, but she is the Canaanite, the foreigner par excellence, the one that in the Bible is the enemy of God's people. God says, kill every last one of them. You know, I'll, I'll always have it a stain against you if it, even one exists, right? So here we have this Canaanite woman. So she's a big, big no-no. And in both stories, but I'm going to focus on Matthew in particular, because I think Matthew develops this uh, intentionally to be modeled on this theme that we've seen in Genesis and Exodus, much more than even Mark does. And in Matthew's version, Jesus is traveling with his disciples and this woman starts calling out, going, you know, please, please help me, please help me. And according to the the text, Matthew says, she's just calling and calling and calling and Jesus is just ignoring her, Mm -hmm. just ignoring her. And this upsets the disciples so much that they eventually confront Jesus as they're walking and say, look, either help her or send her away because she's annoying. Like, mm-hmm. we can't stand hearing her cry out. Like, why are you ignoring her? Just tell her no or do something. So then uh, she runs in front of his feet, goes ahead and uh, begs him to help. And his response is, no. Nah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. She does not accept that. So she's clearly not working on a sort of uh, divine command model, whether or not she thinks he's a religious authoritative person or God himself. She yeah. clearly doesn't care if he says no. She's like, nah, that doesn't deter me. I'm going to keep pushing anyways. So she still says, please help my daughter. She's, she's sick. She's going to die. Please, please, please. So Jesus now transitions from an authoritative statement that just says no. Now he transitions to an argument. Okay. So let's think of this logically, woman. Let's look at this. So if the Jews are like my children, right, and you are a Gentile, we often call you dogs, then uh, think of this logically. Would you give uh, food that's meant for the children, food in this case, miracles, would you give foods uh, meant for the children to your dog? No, that would make you a terrible parent. So Mm. as a parent, I have to give the food to the Jews, not to you. Now, what this is called essentially is a zero-sum argument. Uh, You're saying basically that it's an either-or scenario. There's no middle ground, either this or that, right? And then you portray this in a way that makes it seem like it's reasonable even emotionally. Like you know both logically and emotionally that you wouldn't do anything different. But she doesn't accept this. And what she does is so often missed by people reading the story. She basically rebuts Jesus and says, you're illogical. Because when she comes back at him, she says, but you're wrong. I mean, she doesn't say that, but she's saying that by what she reveals. She says, but the children, they, they spill crumbs. And those dogs still end up eating the crumbs. So no matter what, the dog still ends up getting something. Yeah. So i.e., you're wrong, Jesus. It's not a, a zero-sum argument. There is a middle ground, a gray area. Now, what's fascinating about this is how Jesus responds. If Jesus is a very good, skillful rabbi, and 
is in any way familiar with the rabbinic traditions of argumentation. That should not be where the fight ends, right? There should be then another comeback. There should be then like another comeback, right? Like, like um, this would not be representative of how Judaism takes arguing. It, it will go full steam ahead. Like this will be a thing. Instead, Jesus gets excited. He gets excited, immediately praises her and says, great is your faith. Hmm. Now in Mark's version, he says, uh, for saying this, for rebutting me, you're, you're, you've healed your daughter. It's, it's been done to you. Wow. So Jesus is uncharacteristically happy about being told no and being proven wrong. Hmm. What does that suggest? Does that suggest that the woman surprised Jesus and, and he's like, wow, I really got to change now. Now I got a new logical argument given to me. Or does it suggest that he was waiting for this? And like Moses, like Jacob, there's a provocation that's being occurred here that really is trying to test. Now, what really is fascinating about this is that uh, Matthew laid groundwork for this. And so this story that seems to praise a Canaanite woman also shames the disciples. Because five chapters earlier in Matthew 10, you actually got Jesus to give orders to the disciples about what they're to do. And one of those orders that's given is you are not to go to the Gentiles for I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Hmm. The disciples don't argue with that. They're good with it. They accept it. Now, five chapters later, as they've only been doing that, suddenly now a Canaanite woman comes, tells, God, tells Jesus no, and Jesus responds back, Woo, great is your faith. Yeah. Yeah. And I love this take that you're talking about the story. This story has always been very troubling for me. I always think, like, why was Jesus so harsh with her? Like, why does she have to exhibit such, you know, why does she have to submit to this idea that she's a dog and, like, put herself in the shoes of a dog and say, well, I even, even I get the crumbs. And in that kind of humiliation of herself that he's like, great is your faith. Like, that's kind of how my, I always interpreted it. And I was like, this is just so unfair. I don't like this. It doesn't come out doesn't come off right but in the context of understanding like this was an opportunity where god displayed a severe image of himself and that one you know the disciples first reaction is like you know they interpret jesus's silence and not answering her cries as some type of disapproval right like they were already in this space of like judging well what does his silence mean and they were leaning on the side well this means he just wants her to go away so either send her away or do something and when he begins to display the severity that they had already probably projected that he felt towards her, you know, there was this probably agreement, you know, in, in themselves. And to see that this interaction was God saying, like, I'm glad that somebody sees me for who I am and does not believe that this is the picture uh, even though I'm I'm giving them a reason to believe that I'm severe and unloving, like that they actually don't believe that about me. That's just, you know, that makes so much more sense. Uh, you know, she passed the test and it's not just a test that she faces in that sense. Like we all at some point are going to go through a space of time where we feel like God is acting severely towards us. And it's a story that we all can take something from as much as I feel sympathy for her in that moment and think, that's so messed up, right? Uh, there have been and there will be more moments in my life where I will think 
that was harsh, God. That was harsh. And to say, how can I be like this person in that moment to press past this image of a severe image of who he is and to say, actually, I think he's better than this. I know that he is, right? Yeah, no, it gets down to the core of not only does she rebut Jesus, but why would she try? Hmm. Right? Like, like, it's easy to be like, okay, so we notice a logical contradiction. Why would she keep going if Jesus already has like basically dismissed her? Why does she think that if she gives this rebuttal, it'll work? Right. Why would she keep persisting? Right. And it's that persistence, that that inclination to keep fighting that fascinatingly ties her to Jacob. So that even though she's a Canaanite woman and a foreigner, a non-Jew, she better embodies Jacob and the meaning of Israel than the disciples when he first gave them the teaching five chapters earlier. And Brilliant. so this, this, you know, and it's very important, right? Because in Matthew, you know, what's the end of the gospel? It's all about going to the Gentiles, right? So Matthew has this, this intention of framing the Gentile mission and, and framing, you know, Jesus uh, as intrinsically part of that, as opposed right. to, in some sense, opposed to it. And we know there were groups that were opposed to it because the book of Acts says there were lots of people Christians who left, uh, Christian Jews who left to go out to spread the news and they only spread it to Jews. They stayed away from the Gentiles. So, you know, these attitudes existed, but, you know, Martin Luther talks about this and, and he describes it in his sermons as uh, she trapped Jesus. Mm. Like, like his image is that she, she, uh, she played the game Jesus laid uh, on the table and she managed to she managed to play it so well that she she traps Jesus so that uh, Jesus has to smile and say congratulations. Like, you know, like you played so well. So Luther is, is making this argument that basically she played the game. And not only did she play the game well, she played the game the best. She, mm-hmm. she is impressing Jesus by just how willing and quickly she is able to pick up on the fact that there was a challenge given to her. In other words, what sounded like a terrible no turned out to be an invitation. Similar to how Mm. God turns to Moses and says, stay away. But his actual words here are in fact prompting Moses to interfere. In fact, this is how Ellen White herself puts it when she comments on that story, that the saying, you know, get away from me, is itself the invitation to say, no, let's Mm. let's engage, let's have that conversation. So it's fascinating to, to see here a story in which Jesus is interacting this way. But we see this also in the Gospel of John in chapter two with his mother, where Mm. you're at the wedding of Cana and the mother comes to Jesus, says, you know, my son, there's a situation with the wine. What do we do? And he turns to her and says, woman, why are you looking at me? Why, Why should I, my hour has not come yet. Right. Not my business, not my concern, right? Mm. That's pretty authoritative. And, you know, unlike Matthew, where Jesus is not yet God himself, like the writers do not understand Jesus in this high Christology just quite the same as John does. John does. John thinks that when Jesus speaks, it's God speaking. There's no difference. It is God. So when you've got God going ahead and coming and telling you, nope, not my time, I mean, according to classic, you know, conservative theology, this just means accept it. Like God told you, sometimes God's no is for a greater purpose, accept it. Mm. She doesn't. Like the Canaanite woman, uh, she goes ahead, turns, leaves, goes to two servants, or, or I forget if it's said two or just servants in general, and says, 
he's going to tell you something. Like, I don't buy this, that he's not going to do something. So I know him. He's going to do something. So whatever he tells you, you go do it. What happens? Jesus does exactly. So, right, then this creates this interesting dilemma for people. Well, what happened? Did Jesus change his mind? Right? And so if you're, you know, a bit into open theism, this might be a text you want to draw on. Like, oh, okay, so maybe God is malleable. He can, he can switch around. But again, if we keep seeing this theme that pops up through all these stories, the, it starts to beg the question, like, well, did he change or was that a test? Did he change or is this actually what God's will was from the beginning? Now, if we ask Mary, Mary would not say he changed. And I think this is the key to recognizing. It doesn't matter what we think while we're looking third party at these stories. The question is to say, what would these characters have thought? So Mary did not think that Jesus was changing. She never believed what he was telling her when he said no. That's why she went to the servants. Moses didn't believe God was changing. That's why he told him, no, you've got to go back to what you are and affirms (laughs) it, right? Jacob demands a blessing because of who God has been, not because he thinks, oh, no, you're changing and and I need something now to uh, adjust to that. So again and again, we see these stories in which Jesus and God are presented constantly through the Old and New Testament as engaging people. And it's fascinating, too, just on a funny coincidence, that all the stories in the Old Testament deal with uh, men uh, Mm. who successfully argue with God. But then in the New Testament, all the stories with Jesus seem to involve, for for arguing, involve women. And I don't know, that just is an interesting... interesting parallel between the two. And I, and I think, and I was thinking about that as you were talking, I was just thinking, I think, I wonder if it's more of like a, kind of like a societal necessity, you know, that women being in the position that they were in, you know, had to become skillful in their persistence in order to, to, to get what they wanted, right? Like, unless, because they were not allowed to work within that society, they often had to defer their request to a patriarchal structure, whether that was their husbands or, uh, you know, rulers. And in order to be able to get their way, there had to be like this exercise of persistence. And one other thing that you were talking about made me think like kind of in a cute way, I think of my dog and I think about how he will look at me and he will be asking me for something through his eyes and he will be asking me for food and I will tell him no, like, no more treats for you. And he just sits there in his persistence and I eventually cave, right? And yep. so there's <laughs> there's a sense of like almost duality of like, you know, uh, that God is showing himself to be to to be prevailed upon, but also there's this kind of um, relational aspect of like, do we really want it that bad? You know, or are we just asking because in this casual sense or in our persistence, do we display something about the level of our want? And does that change kind of God's, uh, you know, uh, initial uh, response? Like, oh, if you don't really want it that bad, it's, you know, whatever. But if you really do, okay, you can have it. You know, like it makes me think in those types of terms. I think what's also interesting, too, is. You know, oftentimes when we bring this like to a discussion of inerrancy or inspiration, how do we understand scripture? How do we apply these stories and their examples to our own lives and our own uh, wrestlings with scripture? And when we do, I think it's fascinating to note that oftentimes people who are very frustrated with the Old Testament, they'll just go to Jesus and they'll say, okay, I'm a red letter Christian now. Everything Jesus said, that's my, my new divine command theory. You know, I'm just switching it from like the Bible in general to a specific part within the Bible, the canon within the canon. 
But like what these stories illustrate is like, again, the principle didn't change. Like, yes, God came in the flesh. God came in the greatest revelation possible. And he's still doing it. He's still doing the same provocation, right? That the, the people of Israel were not named such until Jesus would come. Right. Even with Jesus, it continues. And so what does that tell you? It tells you that, again, this is a Christian identity as much as it is a Jewish identity. This is, this is not just an identity of religion. It's an identity of what God calls humanity, especially when you mm. see it in relationship to Adam and Eve. So the idea of recognizing what your deepest values are and knowing the difference between, uh, you know, just adhering to a rule because it's a rule rather than adhering to the principle that stands behind the rule becomes yeah. not just a religious but a deeply human principle of what it means to be moral. And so I think, right, when we look at Jesus in the New Testament, it's fascinating to see that not just in these stories, but in other stories, Jesus constantly engages people to think for themselves. You have in the Gospel of Luke, uh, uh, someone comes and says, hey, my brother isn't following the Torah. He's not following the Torah's rule about how to divide the property of my father. So rabbi, you're a rabbi, you interpret the Torah. I need you to tell him what the Torah says and, and ask him to do it. And Jesus turns to him and says, who made me judge over you? Hmm. Now, I mean, Christian readers are reading this and going, God? <laughs> right. right right like you are the judge you're the judge of judge. like there's a whole book at the end of the new testament about you judging what do you mean who made me judge and he also says not only judge but arbitrator or divider over you so who made me someone who divides and, and changes the the chaff from the the wheat you uh but he he says this he just like turns to him and says why are you doing this? In the Gospel of Thomas, which is a collection of various oral traditions about Jesus from the first and second century, uh, there's an alternative version of this, very close, but instead of judge, it just has divider. So Jesus says, I'm not, he says, uh, who made me a divider over you? And then it says and, and adds to the Lucan version, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, I'm not a divider, am I? Like, you know me, like, this isn't who I am. Um, but it's fascinating. Like, wait, what do you mean? Jesus is not the person you go to to figure out what the Torah says. Like, mm. you have to figure it out on your mm. own. You need mm. to become your own rabbi in regards to the Torah. Um, so again, Jesus pushing off the idea of don't look to me like I'm suddenly going to be now your divine command theory. Like, you'll need to engage. You'll need to fight too. Then yeah. you have Jesus as well in Matthew 19 where he goes ahead and begins a saying of his and goes, well, not everyone can accept this. Let, mm. let whoever can accept this, accept this. Mm. I mean, like, that's got to strike people as odd, you know, when you're coming from an right. authoritarian perspective of Scripture. What do you mean, accept it if you can't accept it? Like, imagine right. teaching the Ten Commandments. Imagine Adventists going around with the Sabbath and saying, right. well, the seventh day is the Sabbath if you can accept it. Right. Wait a minute, this isn't how we do apologetics. You know, it either is true or it's not true. And if it is true, you got to do it. And, and if, right, Jesus is not operating in these principles and neither do often um, a lot. Like in Ezekiel, God goes ahead and says, I gave you bad laws, but instead of rejecting them and knowing that that wasn't my intention, you accepted them. And in accepting them, you gained the consequence as judgment of what those laws required. There's a difference between how I've established who I am, what I've established your role in relationship to me is, versus I just said some words. 
And so Jesus is continuing this instruction of you want to take my yoke upon me, but again, you're not taking up my cross, you're taking up your cross, right? Mm -hmm. This is your journey, you have to own it, and you're going to have to walk it alongside me, but I'm not, you're not just grabbing my cross and just doing whatever I did, right? There, this yeah. is deeper than that, and there's a relational aspect here that's gonna have to carry forward. So I think yeah. when we take like these principles, what it ends up kind of demonstrating is that all our debates about inerrancy, whether it is inerrant, whether it's not, or even, for example, when we're starting to debate things like thought inspiration versus w verbal inspiration, like we're trying to make these really nuanced discussions, all these stories are like a big asterisk to the point of inerrancy, right? Inerrancy is a universal principle that says whatever God says is without error, without problem, and so it's totally true. Mm. But what we see in each of these stories is God speaking errant words, words that mm. do not reflect what God's actual will is, that are yeah. part of a test. He, these words are not intended to be taken as true, even though as part of the test they're presented as if they are. And right. the individual listening to them has to struggle with this. And they have to know what God has done before, what God has established himself as, and use that in conjunction with these statements to discern who God is. Yeah. Once yeah, you do I, that... Yeah. yeah, go on. No. No, no, please. I mean, just once you do that, uh -huh. inerrancy has an asterisk next to it. And any universal claim that has an asterisk is no longer a universal claim. It's conditional. Right. And if it's conditional then that means you need to have a principle to understand when is God speaking and he's trustworthy and when is God speaking and he's testing me. Yeah, that's just a principle that we're, not, we're missing in a sense in these discussions about the Bible's inspiration. And it's crucial for us being able to bring the, the divided elements of our church, whether they're conservative or liberal, back together on a middle ground that's firmly rooted in scripture and allows both parties to talk to each other as brothers and sisters rather than as kind of rival parties, one thinking that they're better aligned with God than another. Stay tuned for next week as we wrap up this conversation, exploring some principles that will help make for better conversations between the divided parties of our church, as well as invite us to a more curious and trust-filled relationship with Jesus, even in our moments of doubts and uncertainty. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to do so at Advent Next. You can follow our guest today on Twitter at M. Cortman, and be sure to check out his book, Say No to God. Keep up all of the engagement. I really love hearing from you all. So thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>